Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The time in Kiev is 9 a.m. Tuesday, September 13th. And Kharkiv Oblast is free. First, everyone, welcome to another episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. I'm Eric, your host, and I first have to apologize. The sound is terrible. Why? Because I'm in South America. I'm in Buenos Aires, enjoying a much-needed break. Um, I don't have my podcast mic. I am a little bit sick, but the situation on the ground is just too important for me to not record an episode for you guys. So... Here we are, Ukraine, episode 10, the absolutely dazzling counter blitzkrieg, or as I'm hearing said, the blitzkrieg. Uh, for those who don't know what blyat is, B-L-Y-A-T, go look it up. So we'll just call this one the blitzkrieg. So uh, this, this is, I'm just going to come out and say the most special, most awe-inspiring single military thing that I have seen maybe ever, certainly in, in modern warfare, certainly in this century, possibly since World War II. Just dazzling. So we're going to get into all of it, including the lead up, the implications. Um, one of the things to keep in mind, there's tons and tons and tons of maps. And I really, really encourage you to, if you can, follow along on the website, reconsidermedia.com and go to the, you know, go to the show notes. I've got a lot of maps up here and a lot of like notes from good Twitter sources that have shown a bunch of stuff that's going on. You cannot get a sense of what's going on without the maps. But for those of you who listen to podcasts the way I do, you know, doing laundry and such, go look at the maps later or look at them before. I don't care. So anyway. What do we know? So President Zelensky about six weeks ago announced that a major counteroffensive was going to take place in the South. This is to take back Kursan and maybe then some. After a month of using those awesome HIMARSes that we talked about, those guided missiles in the highly mobile artillery rocket systems that the United States donated, they've been attacked for a month. The, the Ukrainians have attacked probably about 400 critical pieces of war-making infrastructure. So Bridges, rail depots, ammunition depots, command and control, bases, communications, hubs, et cetera, et cetera, in the South. And so after a month of that, the offensive started in earnest. Two weeks in, they've still not gotten a ton of territory back. That doesn't necessarily, that's not necessarily a bad thing. If you're watching the maps and that's most of what you can see, right, you get a little impatient. 
But as all of us paying attention know, the Southern Offensive may have been the greatest diversion or ruse in warfare since World War II itself. Because over the last seven days, Ukraine launched the most dazzling counter-blatzkrieg I can imagine. And we're going to go over all of its glorious detail here. To spoil the ending, they drove the Russians out of the north, out of Kharkiv entirely. And they might not be done yet. And there's so, so, so much we don't know, other than the Russians have retreated from everywhere west of the Oskil River in Kharkiv. That's what we know for certain, or for near certain. Um, but other than that, we don't know. There's lots of OPSEC, operational security. There's a lot that's intentionally hidden from the public. There's a lot of stuff where there's the media actually has a like gentleman's agreement to have a blackout and to not report on what's going on, except until later to protect you know the operational security. Now, some we, we can get some hints of what's going on because people will tweet about stuff. But what I can say with certainty is that there will be many a great Hollywood movie made about this because this is one of the great moments in military and geopolitical history, period. I, for one, will watch all of those movies. It's very likely that, as of right now, the tide of the war has turned and for good. Right now, David has is right on top of Goliath, pinning him down and pummeling him in the face. And this fight might not last all that much longer. And there's this sense that building, it seems in certainly in Ukraine, certainly in the West, it seems in Russia as well, that Ukraine's victory at this point is inevitable. So let's get into it. Again, please excuse the sound. So, you know, there was this widely, this like weirdly long lead up to a highly, highly telegraphed offensive that happened again starting six weeks ago with Zelensky's message that he had told the military that they were to retake the South. And the Ukrainians don't do this. The Ukrainians don't declare their moves. And so it was certainly fishy. But one way that you could have tried to interpret it was to say, OK, you know, there's there's political motivations here. But it really seemed like there was something fishy going on. And I thought I had it figured out. What's interesting is, is it was actually after the the offensive started in earnest in the South when it was declared started as opposed to just in, its, in that preparatory phase with all those high Mars and other artillery blowings up of stuff. But I actually went to my fiance about a weekend, scratching my head. I said, there's there's something odd about this because there's so much fanfare was made of this Kursan offensive and, and not much seems to have happened. And I reasoned for myself, you know what? You know, why, why, would, why would the Ukrainians telegraph this so much? Well, it's to bring a bunch of Russians into Kursan. But they did that, and it wasn't a diversion. They actually attacked in Kursan, and they seemed to be really stuck into it. And so what I reasoned was, you know, the whole point of this was to get the Russians on the wrong side of the Dnieper River. So again, this is where you're going to have to really start looking at maps here about what's going on in Kursan. But, you know, the Russians sent over that month sent as many troops and as much material as they could to the wrong side of the Dnieper, which is the... Ukrainian side, right? This is one of those, I'm not locked up in here with you. You're locked up in here with me moments. If you're a Watchman fan, you'll know that. And also on, from the Russian perspective, the wrong side of the river, because the Ukrainians blew up a bunch of bridges. And so all that material that was like meant to go over to Kursan to defend it, a lot of it couldn't make it because the bridges are all blown up. And a lot of it is trapped on the wrong side of the river. And you have all these guys trapped on the wrong side of the river, these Russian guys trapped with a bunch of angry Ukrainians barreling down on them who don't have a lot of resupply. And so I go, okay, that makes sense. This offensive is not meant to take back territory very quickly. It is meant 
to trap a bunch of Russians on the wrong side of the river and then beat the crap out of them at your leisure because they can't be resupplied. And so I go, okay, great. This makes sense now. It's a little unsatisfying in some ways, but it is meant to trap a bunch of Russians um, and then in one way or another, destroy that army, giving them they have nowhere to retreat and they have no way to get supplies. So they will be destroyed eventually by a force that can resupply itself and can get reserves up. Great. And I go, okay, cool. I've, I have, you know, made my peace with this. Hilariously, this was one day before the Kharkiv offensive that I had gone to my, you know, fiance and kind of reasoned out for myself that I was now comfortable with the with the Southern offensive. The only thing that was uncomfortable was that the Russians acted like the NPCs in a video game or acted like John Wick villains and and just played directly into the trap about as well as they could have. And I just don't quite understand that other than there must be political reasons because the Russians took it, took the bait, hook, line, and sinker. They sent perhaps 25,000 troops to the wrong side, again, the Ukrainian side, the Dnipro River, or at least tried. And that's wild, given the Ukrainian possession of HIMARS and the fact that there are only two serious bridges. Again, like this is the kind of thing that if you think it through for a little bit, you shouldn't do it, right? When you When you believe that the Ukrainians have the ability, and they've demonstrated it, to take out a bunch of, you know, take out the bridges, take out rail depots, take out ammunition depots, all this stuff during that month. If I'm the Russians, I go, you know what? They can have Kurson. If they're going to focus everything over there, we should do something else. The problem is the Russians haven't made any forward progress in months. And so there's this huge political pressure for them to, if they're not going to make progress, at least not lose. And that's what the Ukrainians were betting on. And the Russians walked blindly into this trap. Now, that's probably Russia's biggest strategic issue right now is that this this you know, totally stalled, totally busted invasion is such a political mess that politics are deciding everything. And a certain somebody doesn't feel like he's able to lose face, although he just lost it. And, and how much can you really lose? And so they felt the need that they had to defend Kurson. They had to win this. And maybe they thought they could beat up the Ukrainians and counterattack. That's not working. The Kursan offensive is doing its job even just for the Kursan offensive. It's pinning down, isolating, and removing from play a whole pile of Russian troops. And again, we know about the Kharkiv offensive at this point. So you look back and you say, is Kursan primarily a feint? And maybe it might even just depend who you ask. Now, if you ask the, you know, the problem is, of course, this worked out so well that in hindsight, they're going to say, yeah, we were just that crazy and we tried to do both, right? We tried to lure the Russians away from the north and east so that we could strike a defensive there. And we tried to trap them on the wrong side of the Dnieper River. And it just turns out the Russians are so stupid that they just did everything we wanted. And so we just decided we would do both, which... You know, look, if it is a feint, like great work, it drew a bunch of troops, you know, and the, the Ukrainians, like the Ukrainians were looking, probably looking at the situation because their intelligence is, it has to be awesome for this to have worked. We'll talk about that in a sec, but like, but they had to have incredible intelligence from the ground, from partisans in the backfield, from the Americans, etc. But, uh, you know, in the South, in Kursan, you know, they don't have the blitzkrieg ability that they do in Kharkiv. They probably have less armor, less close air support, or at least less of a, you know, massive advantage in, in troops and, and skill, because they clearly had that advantage in Kharkiv. But in Kursan, you know, the Feng cut those Russian troops to the point where they are indeed completely cut off and isolated. They have no way to get reserves or supplies. What supplies they have are getting picked off by high marses. They're, you know, again, I'm not stuck in here with you. You're stuck in here with me. 
trapped on the wild side of what is a very wide river. If you're a Russian troop, you know, if you're not wearing blue and yellow, Kursan is not where you want to be right now. It's, it's, you're just sitting there trying to defend, trying to possibly counterattack when your CNC is all messed up, when you're not getting supplies, when it's really hard to know what's going on elsewhere. Um, so you're mostly sitting on your butts waiting for the Ukrainians to come after you and throw a bunch of artillery at you. And not to say that the Russians don't have their fair share of artillery, mind you, right? Like they, they, you know, can interdict Ukrainian advances, but you have this incredible ambition and guts that the Ukrainians have on display that, you know, not only did they want to strike and take territory quickly in the North by luring a bunch of Russians away, but they also were willing at the same time to slowly and methodically neutralize a bunch of Russian troops in the South that they seem to be doing successfully. It's truly incredible. And it seems part of the way that the Russians got really off flat-footed here is they not only, they have all these troops that that many of which made it to Kurson and but many of which didn't, again, are on the wrong side of the river. So they're sitting there not able to do a whole lot in part because all the rail depots that they used to try to get those troops to Kursan were interdicted. So you have all these troops just south of the Dnieper River who cannot quickly make it back to Kharkiv or even the Luhansk Blast and can't make it to Kursan. So you have Kursan somewhat isolated. You have a lot of troops there, but not so many that you have an advantage. And in Kharkiv, you've got Bupkis. And the reason you left Bupkis behind in Kharkiv is one, because you're not that bright. um, And the Russians have been, you know, turning over generals faster than, I can't think of an analogy right now, but they've been turning over generals and leaders of this military debacle so quickly that you don't have a united front or you don't have a good plan over what to do. So so one, they just pulled too many out, but two, they didn't think the Ukrainians could launch two major offensives at the same time because the Russians certainly couldn't. They can't even manage one offensive right now. And so the Russians leave behind these troops in Kharkiv who are low in number. They've been ground down. Their supplies are crappy. They've got huge morale issues. They have been interdict. You know, they have had issues with a lot of HIMARS striking them. They just haven't been. The Ukrainians haven't been bragging about those. So it hasn't brought as much attention to it, which seems to be a big thing that's going on. And I, I can't help myself but say it now that the Ukrainian operational security and deception here has been mind-bogglingly good, right? Nobody saw Kharkiv coming outside of Ukrainian high command and the Pentagon and the CIA. But, you know, the the Russians were in this really, really bad place in the north, and they let themselves get there, one, by grinding those troops down, trying desperately to assault. And because they, again, it's the politics, because they weren't making progress, after Lysychansk, and Lysychansk was a bloodbath for them. Sorry, Severodonetsk was a bloodbath for them. Um, after Severodonetsk, they didn't make any progress, so they keep throwing people at the problem, and those guys get ground down, and they don't really want to be part of this, uh, but they mostly got guns at their backs pushing them. And then, you know, so their morale is in the tank. And then you, of course, have their air defense, which has been messed up by these very well, well-placed strikes by Ukrainian Pimarses. And then you have these Ukrainians on the other side who have been, you know, who now believe they can win because they stopped the Russians in their tracks for months. They've got more and more support from the West, more and more supplies that they are trained on, but they have, and they've got tons of morale. And the Ukrainian Air Force is back, which is incredible. The Kharkiv assault, counterattack, had 
this Ukrainian Air Force that's been retrained, that's sporting multi-role weapons that allow them to attack a bunch of stuff in different situations. They can they're able to attack, you know, other other aircraft, they're able to attack ground targets, they're able to attack anti-air missiles, they're able to attack radar all sorts of stuff, and a pretty good, you know, anti-air defense network that the Ukrainians have. They have counter-battery stuff. Now, all these really advanced Western weapons that they are making great use of. I mean, it's incredible to see a military incorporate this stuff that quickly. A military that in particular had been limping along for decades on absolutely garbage Soviet hand-me-downs. And now they've got the NATO hand-me-downs, and they're absolutely kicking butt with them. Just amazing. And so... Because nobody had any idea that the Kharkiv demands was coming, the Russians were not prepared for it. And the lightning offensive began. And it's so delicious. I I got I kept thinking, like, oh, now's the time to record this episode. And then I kept waiting because it was like, oh my gosh, it's it's going down so fast. And I think what's so important to make clear right now is that for those of us who've been watching, for those of us who've been paying attention. We kept thinking every time we'd see updates on like the Twitter sphere or the OS intelligence sphere, we'd go like, there's no way, there's no way they've gotten this far this quickly. There's no way. We didn't believe it. It was just too, it was just, it was all so optimistic, you know, like maybe a localized breakthrough. Yeah. But getting to Kupiansk in four days and taking out Izium in six days was unimaginable. And even as we saw it unfolding, we weren't willing to believe it. And so part of what's interesting is we actually don't know what the true object, the true original objective was, because it's hard to imagine that the Ukrainians were so ambitious that they thought, yeah, we'll totally break through here and just, you know, the Russians will flee, like in their words, Olympic runners, leave them behind a bunch of equipment and just and just abandon their posts. And we'll be able to move so fast that we'll be able to just take Kubiansk and Izium in a week. It's hard to imagine that that was even one of the scenarios they planned for. But it's clear that they were going after Kupiansk and quickly. And Kupiansk is really, really important because it's a major junction for rail for all of Northeast Ukraine coming from Russia, coming from Ukraine, and going down and supplying primarily Izium, who as soon as they realized they were not supplied, they fled, but also supplying Severodonetsk and the Sichansk. Uh, which you remember the Russians took months and months of grind to take. We talked about this back in episode eight, which feels like a long time ago now because it was. So the assault, the assault started from a couple of places. One was Kharkiv City, but most importantly, Balak, Balaklaya. And again, like nobody knew, the Russians did not know just how many troops um, the Ukrainians had had stored up there and, and just how mobile they were and just how much armor was there. The and Ukrainians built up a bunch of troops in a small town. They snuck them in there, it seems. We don't know, but they seem to have snuck them in there in this small, seemingly inconsequential town. And they specifically designed these like these highly mobile units using MRAPs, which are mine-resistant troop transports that the Americans donated, tanks, uh, apparently a lot of tanks, armored fighting vehicles, towing equipment to bring artillery and air defense to bear, you know, and, and tanks and armor seem to have made, played a major part here. So they did plan for this lightning offensive where they were going to then go bring all this logistics and all this air defense and artillery and covering fire in with them to allow that advance to continue. And the, so the Ukrainians were prepared for it and the Russians absolutely weren't. And it was an absolute delight to watch over a period of just five days, supported by, you know, conventional artillery, anti-air missiles, air support, and, and anti-anti-air missiles, 
Um, they absolutely crashed through the front lines and, it was very, and the very sparse back lines of the Russian presence in Kharkiv isolated a ton of troops, Russian troops, mostly in Izium, and took a bunch of POWs, seemingly thousands of people, and scared others so much that they abandoned the towns before the Ukrainians even showed up. And again, we were in disbelief as we watched it unfold. It was stunning. According to Tobias Schneider, one of the OSN guys on Twitter, quote, I'm trying not to lap up every rumor circulating around Telegram, but the main challenge in establishing a clear picture of the situation in Kharkiv appears to be that Russian lines are collapsing faster than Ukraine can even advance in clear liberated areas. Astonishing. One imagines even those Russian forces willing and organized enough to resist will inevitably find themselves outflanked at risk of being cut off and forced to retreat. Occupying forces appear threadbare throughout, a dynamic that would be hard to backstop. If the Izium axis properly disintegrates, that would be a dramatic defeat for the Russian forces, possible turning point in the war. Some videos show Ukrainians bring up mobile air defenses long and long-range artillery, which will like reach beyond the Oskil. So the Oskil is the river. And so he's talking about, this was, what day? September 9th, four days ago now. You know, he's talking about, okay, the, the Ukrainians are not only kicking butt here, but they're getting ready to be able to at least start assaulting across the Oxil and not give the Russians the ability to really take a break. I've got some quick gifts in here. You should go check out the gifts because the gifts show just how dramatic this taking of the territory west of the Oxil was. Izium, Izium was a huge concentration of Russian troops. Like, it's really important to note how much Izium was part of the Russian core strategy of at least threatening the Ukrainian Donbass defenders from the north, but primarily the goal, and it took the Russians a month to take it. And then they held on to it for like four months, maybe five. And they've been trying to break through Izium to encircle the Ukrainian troops in the Donbass. Instead, the Russian troops in Izium got encircled. Um, again, probably thousands of troops were captured. Thousands of pieces of bits, like large and small pieces of equipment were captured because they were dropped as the Russians fled en masse. Izium was a lot of Russian troops, a lot of Russian equipment, and a very strategically important point, at least for the Ukrainian defenders and Russian attackers. But the Ukrainians also took some very important points that make it harder for Russia to defend. That's Kubiansk. So those are the two main objectives. Kubiansk to the north, that rail depot, Izium to the south, where the Russians had a bunch of troops that were threatening Ukrainian lines. And so the, the Russians retreat in this absolute panic um, and panic is contagious, right? Good defense requires buddies at your sides. If if the guys to your left and right are fleeing, you got to get out too. You have to. And so that behind God's material. And uh, so the Russians abandoned 100% of the Kharkiv blast west of the Oxal River and tried to consolidate defense positions on the eastern bank of the Oxal River, those who made it. And they seem to have failed to even do that, at least really well. It takes the Ukrainians a little bit of time to cross, in part because they blew up the bridges across the Oxal River. I think because they didn't think that they would succeed this quickly. Like the fact that they blew up bridges at Kubiansk suggests that they figured this was going to take some time. They'd want these Russians to get isolated and unable to be resupplied. But given how quickly it went, there was no time to resupply them. And so I don't think the Ukrainians predicted that the Russians would collapse this quickly, but they did. And so it's a little harder for the Ukrainians to cross the river now, but they're, you know, they're doing it. And they're trying to, it seems like they're trying to get around the Sichansk and Severo Donetsk to the north. So that western part of Kharkiv is completely liberated. The, the oblast is, the blast of Kharkiv might as well be liberated at this point. The city of Kharkiv, the second biggest city, is finally safe. And the Ukrainians are getting into Luhansk and really messing with the Russians there. The Russians are not able to relax there. It's wild. And one of the things to keep in mind is it's so wild 
that we don't quite know what's going on. So it looked for a while like the Ukrainians were just sweeping right in to like right through a town called Lyman, that there was like absolutely zero Russian resistance behind. But the Russians did seem to put together at least a bit of resistance. Hard to know. But where everyone is settled is that the Ukrainians were able to get up to Kupiansk and scare the Russians out. The Russians just fled. They were able to get behind the Izium and scare the Russians by counter outflanking them that the Russians either surrendered or fled, leaving stuff behind. And the Ukrainians are trying to, in some way, keep going. Um, and it's clear that their targets are Lysychansk and Severodonetsk. So that's what we know so far. And so what's the total ground effect of taking Kark- you know, taking Kharkiv back, taking Kupiansk, taking Izium? Again, it's likely that thousands of Russian troops are destroyed um, or taken prisoner. Thousands of pieces of heavy equipment and stuff are left behind. Lots of ammunition. Obviously, the Russian army is now substantially weaker. Their their position in the Donbass, their position in Luhansk is terrible if the Ukrainians have crossed the Oskil River and are threatening Lysychansk and Severodonetsk. Because you have these guys that are there that got really beat, you know, you have these units that got beat to hell. Again, whose morale is low, who, who aren't particularly functional right now. Because when you beat yourself to hell, taking a city, like you're you're missing officers, you're you're missing units. You don't have a full like you can't command this normally because this this group of people is like missing full units and a bunch of supplies went to the south to Kursan to try to defend it. So it's not clear how well supplied they are. So the Russians may be in a really terrible position in Lysychansk and Severodonetsk. It's it's not clear, but it, the logistics situation there is pretty bad because. It seems that the Ukrainians have at least partially interdicted the Russians' ability to resupply the Sichansk and Severodonetsk. Ukrainian supply lines are looking pretty good with that rail network and highway network. It looks like Russian supply lines aren't great, but that can be very fluid. Yeah, we won't know for a long time how much the Russian army is disintegrated here. Like how much of the Russian forces are are that were around were gone? Is it 5%, 10%, 20%? We don't know. Probably not. 20%. And the morale impact has to be extreme at this point. The Russian normal troops think that you know defeat is inevitable. The Ukrainians at this point think victory is inevitable. And, and that's really hard disease to cure on either side. And there's likely more management shakeups up top, which either means like, you know, which either means there's going to be like lethargy from the top or someone's going to come and be like, oh, I'm going to change everything, right? So you're either going to get like lethargy or confusion. You're not going to get continuation of any sort. It's a really, really, really bad thing for the Russians. And so we want to spend a minute congratulating the Ukrainians here because doing stuff like this is really, 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 really hard. Very rarely do you see anyone pull off an offensive like this, even among like A-plus militaries, right? Keep in mind, the Russians have tried to achieve a breakthrough like this for seven months, and they failed every single time. And this is despite massive superiority in artillery, in armor, in air support, in long-range missiles that can take stuff out, right? Like, we talk about these HIMARSes that the Americans gave them, all 16 of them, like they're rods from God. But the Russians have had cruise missiles and their own satellites. Like the Russians can take out stuff with precision as well. And they've had a lot more time to do it. And they've had a lot more ammunition to do it. And and the Russians with more of everything failed completely in establishing these breakthroughs. 
And the Ukrainians pulled it off to stunning effect in a way that the Russians probably weren't even willing to dream of. It's just incredible. And I think that's one of the things we have to appreciate. Like only A plus militaries pull this off. Because even if, because the morale defense is huge. And even if it's against a force that you think is prone to retreat, um, one of the things to keep in mind is like overextending yourself gets you killed, right? And so like the Taliban pulled this off, right? You might say like, Eric, the Taliban pulled this off and ISIS pulled this off. Yes, but they're suicidal, right? These guys are just absolutely suicidal. So they're just willing to just go, you know, Allah Akbar and and just and just go at it. Whereas, you know, the Ukrainians are not suicidal. And so to do this and like they follow orders. Right. And so like the Ukrainian high command can't say, OK, just keep running and hope nobody kills you. Because the thing about Afghanistan and Iraq, the thing about the Taliban and ISIS is if anyone stiffened their spine at all, these guys would have gotten white in some of their offensives. But just nobody stiffened their spine. So it's just wildly reckless unless you know that your enemy has zero interest in resisting, right? When ISIS took over northern Iraq, they would win fights where they were outnumbered 15 to 1. And it's just because nobody wanted to fight them. So, so generally speaking, against any army of any competence, you have to be an A-plus military to pull this off. And to even plan for this requires just a like truly stunning level of cojones. And so you need to have the ambition to do this. You have to have the morale to do this, but you have to nail a whole lot of stuff, right? You need to have a great plan, to be clear. And yes, of course, the United States is involved. Like that's now clear. They've been involved throughout the entire thing. So they've been they've been helping from the back, but they were really, really involved in planning. Um, the Ukrainians at this point do seem to have finally a technology advantage over the Russians, but you need a great plan. You need incredible command and control, communication, coordination, all those C's. Those need to be just top notch. And you have to give your, your frontline leaders, right? These guys who lead squads, who lead companies, who lead battalions, a high degree of flexibility and initiative because no plan survives contact with the enemy. So these guys have to have flexibility. They have to have a really good plan that has like a lot of different, like, hey, if X, then Y, if this is too slow, what do you do? If this is too fast, what do you do? You drill it right? You drill it a bunch. Where did they have the opportunity to drill this? Like there was no war gaming. There's no live war gaming going on. You know, there's no live exercises for these guys. So they had to like do this for the first time. Remember the Ukrainian military has never done this. The Ukrainian military has like fought for seven months, like ever. Well, I guess they, sorry, they fought in the Donbass, but like they lost and they, these weren't these like major, you know, they, they they didn't do well. And so I guess they've been trained a bunch since then, but they haven't had a whole lot of opportunities here. And so the amount of flexibility initiative and coordination that you see all at once, amazing. You also have to have like awesome intelligence, obviously, but you have to have like amazing deception as well and operational security. You have to make sure nobody sees this coming, right? And they didn't. My, my admiration for the Ukrainians just found a new gear that I didn't know was there. One little fun thing about deception is, so... Just before the Ukrainian offensive in the north, CNN puts out an article, August 31, titled the article is, quote, U.S. war gamed with Ukraine ahead of counteroffensive and encouraged more limited mission, right? So just before the Kharkiv offensive, the U.S. leaks that like, oh, yeah, we told them their offensive was like way over ambitious and they should do less. It's very likely intentional, intentional deception. The U.S. and, and Ukraine's 
working together. And I mentioned this before, but like, even with all this great planning, you need to make sure you don't get too far ahead of yourselves. If you do, you're very vulnerable to be destroyed. And the Russians could, you know, if there was any resistance by the Russians, which you have to anticipate, if you get way too far ahead of yourself, you start getting destroyed, you start retreating, it could go right back the other way. There's no reason it can't. And so you have to have reserves, you have to have artillery and air support coming forward, anti-air coming forward. You have to like think about reestablishing front lines and making those decisions constantly. Do we reestablish front line? Do we keep going? You reach the river, do you keep going? And those live decisions that you need to make are awesome, especially since what we kept hearing was that like it was hard for, they were moving so fast, it was actually hard for the, the top brass to keep track of what was going on. Ah, oh, just awesome. It's hard to appreciate, you know, I'm not a military man, I'm just a fanboy. It's hard to appreciate how incredible this is. The other really incredible thing is that it might not be over yet. So this is like a rolling route, right? So like, this is why getting flanked is so dangerous in, in old school warfare. It's like you lose your right flank and all of a sudden you have a new right flank that just saw all of its buddies either get destroyed or run away. And so now they're scared. And so you can literally roll a line of troops. You think of like a bunch of troops in a line. If you get their flank, you can roll it. And so there might be a bit of a rolling route going on. Now, it's very hard to see what's going on right now. The operational security kind of sphere might be back, but I've seen hints. And this guy, I like Chuck Ferrer of Indications and Warnings. He's a former SEAL guy. He's a bigger military fanboy than I am. He spends a bunch of time on Telegram. He's an open source intelligence guy. Sometimes his maps are wrong, but sometimes they're amazingly correct. As of right now, as of 1 a.m., on September 13th in Kiev, and right now it's 9 a.m., what he believes is that the Ukrainians have done a pretty good job crossing the river. They've interdicted Highway 66, which supplies Lysychansk's Ferdinesk from the north. Now, they still have some supply from the east, but they might have cut them off, and they might be coming in hard for Lysychansk from the north. And it turns out from the north is the place that you want to go after Lucy Chansky for you to do it. You don't want to do it from the other side of the river. You want to do it from the north. So could they take Lucy Chansky back in a couple days? Holy smokes. So if they can, I mean, it took the Russians months to take Severodonetsk and Lucy Chansky. You know, and are the Ukrainians in a position to take Severodonetsk? I don't know. But if this map is right, they're in a position to take Lucy Chansky back. And then do they keep going? Right. Like at some point, you have to slow down a little bit, or do you? Well, if you're, you know, if you're one of the best militaries in the world with some of the best commanders in the world, you can keep going. Right. And like, how much are US commanders really, really running this? We don't know. But at some point, like, we must be at a point that the Ukrainians have passed what they originally intended for the week or two. And they're in total bonus territory right now. But like, this is the kind of thing you want to exploit if it's a rolling route. You don't want to give the enemy the ability to like, to really reposition. The more that you can convince them that you're an unstoppable juggernaut, that you are Alexander the Great, the more they're going to act like it, the more that it's going to become true. So over the next few days, this is going to remain really fluid and really live. So, uh, so that's that's my summary of, of what happened in the North. For those of you who um, are curious about the South, there's also rumor, including I'm hearing from maybe the U Ukrainian general staff themselves, but I've not seen it myself, that some or all of the Russian troops in Kursan are negotiating surrender. Probably not all of them, probably only some of them, because there's a lot, but holy wow, if that's happening, you know, if you get even some of those Russian troops to surrender, then 
you again, you have this like massive advantage as Ukrainian to consolidate and take out the rest of the Russian troops. And, and that could lead to like sort of the rolling route in Kursan. If those Russian troops are considering surrender, then they must think, I mean, either one, like you sent the wrong troops, like you sent the folks who are very low morale already, and or the leadership of those troops believes that it's hopeless, believes that they're so cut off from supplies from reinforcement, that they're just getting blown to bits by Ukrainian artillery. Who knows that? Yeah, if if they think that's what's going on, they'll they'll choose to surrender at this point rather than just die. Yeah, it's really it's really exciting because this could still be going. We could in a week or two be talking about the fall of Kursov, the fall of Lysychansk, the fall of Severodonetsk, and then what next? You know, we're not going to be in Crimea in two weeks. We're not going to take Donetsk City in two weeks. Probably not going to take Lahan City in two weeks. Malikiv, I'm sorry, not Malikiv. Melitopol, Mariupol. I don't know. This is going to be very fun to watch, and so I'm going to try to stay as close to it as possible. For those of you willing to put up with the terrible, terrible acoustics here, I might keep podcasting on it, uh, even on the way. So thank you for listening. Thank you for the patience. Please go to the website reconsidermedia.com to check out some of these cool maps because they'll really give you a sense of what's going on. And until next time, Slava Ukraini. But other than that, don't let the pundits do the thingy for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.